hear the word of God. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those who practicing such things, uh, those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we take up again uh, after a brief break, the the letter to the Romans, uh, and as we consider this unfolding discussion uh, of the wrath of God revealed against all equally. Uh, We pray that you would impress us at once with a sense of your wrath, uh, while at the same time uh, the amazing grace which matches or meets that wrath on behalf uh, of the elect and cause us all the more uh, to to praise you uh, for the depths of the grace which has saved us and to adore that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we find ourselves in a new stage of the argument. Uh, And as we do so, uh, we just concluded chapter one. As we do so, I I want us to have some sense of where we stand within uh, the larger unfolding argument in Romans. You remember what the apostle says uh, by way of summary or thesis statement in chapter one, verses 16, 17 and 18, which Uh, Gives us the main idea which he then unfolds. He's not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes this is a message uh, or a letter about the gospel for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And so the primary aspect that Paul wishes to reveal uh, or to explain to the church is that of righteousness in that righteousness is found the power of God to save and that will become the major idea. Uh, But uh, also connected with this as a contrast is the idea of the wrath of God, verse 18, which is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And from there, in beginning in verse 18 uh, or verse 19, having stated this in verse 18, he begins to unfold the thought of God's wrath being revealed, not God's righteousness being revealed, verse 17, but God's wrath being revealed, verse 18. And he begins with the Gentile, the wrath of God revealed against him, verses 19 through 32. This is what we uh, concluded last time. The one whom Paul says knows the truth, yet who suppresses it in unrighteousness. And we see the many ways he does this. And what is the result? Namely, three times Paul says God hands him over. He hands him over to his sinfulness and the futility of his thinking and so forth. All of which makes plain, Paul says in verse 20, chief indictment against such people. They are without excuse. In other words, their judgment before the throne of God is just. It is an unjust, which even they seem to know. Verse 32, he concludes with the thought that who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. They know that these are damnable practices and lifestyle uh, before God, and yet they still do them. And so, again, verse 20, they are without excuse. And so if they were to protest, for instance, these Gentiles in chapter one, whom Paul is addressing, that this is unfair for whatever reason, uh, perhaps because they, unlike the Jews, did not possess the law. God didn't give them the law. 
as he did the Jews, is it really fair that he would condemn them? Paul makes it uh, plain in that chapter that their excuses amount to nothing. Again, without excuse. And so Paul begins with the Gentile and shows him how God's wrath is against him and is being revealed to him from heaven. He may not have the law like the Jew, but he still has enough a sense of God from creation to know that there is a God and that he ought to be thankful, that he ought to glorify God from his life, as well as the sense of right and wrong. And that because he does not live a life of righteousness, he deserves to be damned. That is plain to all alike. And yet, again, he still does not live like this. Now, if you were thinking of the Gentile, that is the man who is not a Jew in the time that Paul was addressing uh, the Romans, you can see what Paul is doing. He's exposing him and he is helping him to see his true state and his plight in order that he might be prepared to listen to this gospel of righteousness, he himself being devoid of it. And so my first point is to notice the apostle's method in this larger section. He announces the gospel in verses uh, 16 and 17 is the power of God unto salvation. And the way it's the power of God unto salvation is by a revelation of righteousness to the man who has faith, which we will call later and we'll see it over and over and over again. We call that justification by faith. That's the gospel Paul is so eager to preach. He announces it, but he doesn't begin to expound it until uh, chapter 3, verse 21. And then from there to the end of the, chap- uh, of the book. But why is that? It's because the message of the gospel is a call to repentance. You remember, that's how John came preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus after him with the same message. He's announcing the presence of salvation in the kingdom and telling men that it's time to repent because the wrath of God is against them. And Paul is saying the same thing here. And he'll even go on to say, as we'll see in the next verse, that the goodness and the long suffering and the riches of his grace, the riches of his grace, I mean, are meant to lead men to repentance. The design of the gospel is that men might turn from their sin and be saved by faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But no man will heed this message, nor will he welcome it, until he sees his true state and his true plight. As the Puritans would say, the law must wound before the gospel can heal. And the reason that men reject the gospel, the the Gentiles first of all, but then the Jew as well, is because they do not see that they are sick in need of a physician. They think that they are well. They are unaware, again, of their plight before God. And it is not until they see it plainly. And Paul is helping them to see it, just as we are meant to help men to see it. Not until then that they will cry out. So the Philippian jailer did, what must I do to be saved? Or as the Jews did in Peter's preaching uh, on Pentecost Day, what must we do to be saved? That is the goal of preaching. It's the goal of presenting the gospel to enable men to see their need, to earnestly desire the salvation we're offering them. And once they have, then we know that we have a message for them. We are confident. We are eager. We are assured. We know that we have what can help them. And indeed, the only thing that can help them, we have a righteousness which we can offer to them, not that of our own, but that which is the gift of God through Jesus Christ by faith. And what we see is that Paul, having done this for the Gentile, now turns and does it for the Jew. 
He does exactly the same, in fact, with the Jew. He exposes and he lays him bare and he helps him to see, if only he would see it, his true need of the gospel. He wishes very eagerly to preach to him. He wishes for the Jew to see, and this was the greatest obstacle of the Jew, the stumbling block over which they stumbled, for the Jew to see that he was, in fact, in the same position as the Gentile with respect to the wrath of God, as well as with respect to the righteousness of God. With respect to the wrath, he was under it. With respect to righteousness, he was devoid of it. He did not have a righteousness before God that could save him. But the trouble with the Jew And let us be honest, it was the same trouble with the Gentile is that he didn't see it. He wouldn't believe it about himself. He thought somehow or some way in the end it would be all right. Both men thought this in their own way. And Paul now, in turning to the Jew, would have him to see that it wouldn't be all right. And that in the end it wouldn't work out unless he repented and believed this gospel. And so... For the Jew, he is saying here, beginning in chapter 2, that their need of the gospel was just as great and just as pressing as it was for the Gentile. And look at how he addresses the Jew. This will be an extended discussion over several sermons. We're only looking at the first three verses. He begins with this major uh, proposition, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Here was the Jew whom Paul addresses like this, O man, which we see is the same man he's addressing in verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. Well, he's addressing the same person throughout. And what he says to him is what we just read in verse one and what follows. But we ask the question, he's saying, you man who judges another are in fact condemned because you do the same things that you are judging another man for doing. The question that we have now, given what he just said in chapter 1, is what led Paul to speak in this way, given what he has just said? And you remember what he said in verse 32 of chapter 1. Let me read it again. He's speaking to the Gentile, to the heathen nations, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That's the immediately preceding verse. The trouble with the man, and especially the Gentile, is that he not only knows that those who practice sin deserve death, again, verse 32, yet he still sins, but especially that he lends approval to those who do the same. Underline that thought in your mind because it provides the contrast in chapter 2, verse 1. He approves of the sins of others. And so Paul is condemning the corporate dimension of sin, not merely the individual sinner, but the corporate aspect, the society of sinners, I called them last time. It's not enough, Paul is saying, for man to seek eagerly and recklessly to damn himself, though he knows better. He's even worse than that. He's cheering on others in the same pursuit, in his eagerness to get to hell, in what he thinks is a total and triumphant rejection of God. He wishes to drag others down with him. And this is, uh, we can see, obviously, depravity in its lowest form. The society of sinners. And we know what kinds of sins and what kinds of depravity that Paul has in view, whether homosexuality, verses 24 through 27, 
or the list of vices which he offers in 29 through 31 of chapter 1. These, again, are the things that man in sin not only does, but which he approves of, which he encourages. He knows they are wrong, but he cannot help but delight in them and to see these things normalized and celebrated as though they were virtues themselves. Now, obviously, when you put it that way, you recognize that Paul is not only describing the first century dynamic, but the 21st century dynamic, certainly in America. This is exactly what is happening in our own day. It isn't enough for man to be sinful, but he wants to see his sin normalized as a kind of virtue and to be celebrated in the sin as though he was the virtuous man and the good man. And so when you read all that he says in chapter 1, summing it all up in verse 32, it would seem that man is as bad as he can be, and indeed he is. But it's interesting to see where Paul pivots after having described the Gentile in that way. Against the backdrop of this, again, not only man and sin, but lending his approval. There is admittedly a good deal of fuss over all this. There are still those today as there were in Paul's day, for whom verse 32 did not apply. Those, I mean, who were prepared to face uh, the grosser perversities of sin and to not approve and to say, that is not right, that is not fitting. This, this kind of behavior does not belong in society, it is a perversion of the moral law, and so forth. In other words, to raise their voices in protest. Not only you see the man who refuses to partake of such sins, but who disapprove of them in others. And we must realize uh, that this is, in fact, something that is commendable. Something which I said uh, in the prior sermon is uh, sadly and remarkably absent in the church today. We've lost our prophetic voice, our willingness to raise our voices and say this behavior is a transgression of the law of God. If the lowest form of depravity is lending our approval to sin, verse 32, then obviously the opposite must also be true. That there is some degree of righteousness involved in not lending our approval or in disapproving of sin. Such a position, let me say again, is one of relative righteousness. And connected with this is a desire to instill uh, good ethical living in others. A positive ethic. Now, the person I have just described is the Jew. That is what the Jew looked like in Paul's day. I think we could say that's what the Jew looked like today. Looks like today, more or less. At least the earnest Jew. The Jew who reads uh, his Old Testament and he believes it and he's trying to live a life of righteousness before God. This is a man who is prepared to say, I reject the ethics of the day. I disapprove of them. I am trying to live my life according to the law of God. Someone who was, uh, in, in that day, just as today, deeply disturbed by the kinds of moral perversions which have become common and celebrated. If you think of the Jews in Paul's day, they were dispersed outside of Israel. They had uh, gone throughout the Roman Empire, and they had witnessed all kinds of moral perversions, the kind that you see in, in America today. That's what they were confronted with. And as they were confronted with this, at least again, the earnest Jews... It was impossible that they could witness such things and not have a kind of shock to their conscience as they witnessed them. This alarming lack of restraint in any manner of sin. 
How could he find himself in such a setting and not disapprove? And indeed he did. He passed his judgment. He said, this is wrong. And the question is, what does Paul say to him? The man who judges, the Jew. Again, you look at what he says in verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. He's speaking to the Jew. And so we realize, as I say, Paul is pivoting here, and he's bringing in a totally different dynamic beginning in chapter 2. Admittedly, the complete opposite of what he was describing in chapter 1. He is dealing with the man who seeks to do what is right, and who more importantly condemns those who do what is wrong. That is the real essence of the contrast. While the Gentiles approve of the sins of others, the Jew does not. And what of such persons? What of the Jews? Let us examine their position. It's noteworthy to see that Paul describes the position of the Jew in exactly the same way. He said that the Gentile, verse 20, was without excuse. Every excuse which he could level against the judgment of God, uh, Paul uh, causes to vanish. He does the same thing with the Jew. The Jew is one who is without excuse. He leads with that thought, in fact. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. They are without excuse, admittedly, for a very different reason. But the point is, with regard to God's judgment and God's wrath being revealed from heaven, they are without excuse, which means that the position of the Jew is exactly the position of the Gentile with respect to God's wrath. God's wrath is being revealed against heaven, against the Jew. That's Paul's point. And it is something that they cannot escape, at least not through their own Judaism and their present way of thinking. Their excuse, which means their reason for thinking that God's wrath will affect the Gentile but not the Jew, it turns out is a very poor one. And again, Paul's whole point in chapter 2 is for them to see this, is to rob them of their excuses so that they would cry out, What then must we do to be saved? You see, the problem, and and really I plan to say this next time, but let me say it now. The problem with the Gentile and the problem with the Jew and the problem with everyone is that we all think God's wrath doesn't apply to me. Oh, yes, it applies to the other man, but it doesn't apply to me. We all have our excuses, but none of them are any good. The only excuse any man ever had that God ever listened to was, yes, but God, Jesus died for me. Now, he'll listen to that. But if you try anything else, well, then you will be found on the last day without excuse. Let us examine the position of the Jews under three headings and then find under three headings Paul's response to the Jews. Uh, More briefly, the first, the position of the Jews. First, the Jews, as you know, imagined that they were righteous. This was characteristic of their position. It's the kind of thing that you see throughout the Gospels. It's even said at times uh, in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, the parable of uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus told his parables to those who thought they were righteous and held others in contempt. This is something Paul as a Jew had to wrestle with, his own sense and satisfaction in his own righteousness, what Jesus was contending uh, with the Pharisees against constantly. Paul is contending against Uh, them as well in in the book of Romans. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. But I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to righteousness, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They really thought that they had a righteousness that God would accept. 
This was just an excuse, Paul is saying. An excuse to think that they did not need the gospel. If you were to ask the Jew today or in Jesus' day whether they needed to be saved, whether they were interested in the message of salvation in the gospel, the question almost wouldn't make sense to them. Because they didn't believe they were sinners. In a sense, if you think of what Paul describes in Romans chapter 7, his encounter with the law, whereby uh, he, he saw his own sin revealed in an abounding manner. That experience is not what the Jew had. It was Paul's experience of that that led him to be a Christian. When the Jew interacted with the law, and prior, Paul prior to his conversion, they did not have a, a sense of their abundant sin, but rather a self-satisfaction in their own righteousness. As to the law, blameless. You remember Paul said that in Philippians 3. That's the kind of thing the Jew would say. They believed they were righteous, number one. As Paul says, they sought a righteousness very different than the one which he was offering. Number two, connected with this, was their intense belief and disapproval of the sins of others. Again, Luke 18, verse 9, they not only believed that they were righteous, but they held others in contempt, just like the Pharisee in that parable. They were ready to condemn others and to regard them as unclean and as, and as unrighteous, which is how Paul describes the Jews' position in verse 1. He says again, you... Whoever you are who judge. The Jew was one who judged others. There's something missing in that phrase I'll come back to, but just think of it. The Jew was one who judged others. Well, let me just say it. He didn't judge himself, but we'll come back to that. But he judged others. And to some extent, this was right. We, what we find in the Jews is something that is often true, and that is, uh, we take something that's good and then we pervert it into something that's bad. When the Lord set up Israel as a nation, as we're seeing in Exodus, he was setting up a holy people unto himself as a way not only to have a special possession to himself, but also as an indictment against the nations. And so it was, in fact, the office of the Jew to judge the nations by their righteous living. But, of course, the Jews, not only were they not righteous, but... They had gone too far with this and they began to condemn and to hate the other nations, to look down upon them with contempt rather than pity. Number three, they also believed that they were in a special relation to God. And indeed they were. They were recipients of, he says, verse four, the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long suffering. Paul will say as well, uh, what, what advantage has the Jew? Verse 1 of chapter 3, much in every way. He goes on to speak of the advantage the Jew has. The Jew was in a special relationship to God. They enjoyed special privileges, which the Gentiles did not. But again, they took something was, uh, that was good and they did something bad with it. They distorted this enormous privilege. And what they thought was that because they were the people of God, that God's wrath and God's judgment could never touch them. They became proud. They became arrogant. Not only that it never would, but that it never could. That they were totally exempt from the judgment and the wrath of God. Here was a man who said, in essence, if, even if I sin, even if I reject God and the covenant, I am safe because I am a Jew. God's wrath will not and cannot be revealed to me. 
I am exempt because I am a Jew. In essence, this was their excuse. Not only to reject the gospel, but to live as they pleased. But here was the problem with their position, their threefold position, which we can also state under three headings. The first was the utter hypocrisy of their position, as stated in verse 1. He says, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For, in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Again, this is the leading thought in Paul's indictment against the Jews, just as it was the central assertion which our Lord made against the Jews in the Gospels. Here they were condemning others. They were saying without reservation, Paul, what you say is right. We agree entirely with respect to his arguments in chapter 1 against the Gentiles. We agree that those who practice such things, these heathen nations, especially those who lend their approval, they deserve nothing, wrath, nothing less uh, rather, than the wrath and the judgment of God. But here was the problem, Paul goes on to say in chapter 2. It was that in reality they were no different than the Gentile. There were, of course, certain superficial differences. They didn't lend their approval, this is true. They didn't partake in many of the grosser forms of moral perversion. Although, if you read your Old Testaments, you might question even that. But in the final analysis, they still partook of the same. They did the very things they were condemning in others. Perhaps to a lesser degree. But nevertheless, sins of the same class and of the same kind. And so here they were, condemning others. Yet they didn't even realize that in doing this, they were condemning themselves. Because they were doing the very things which they were condemning in others. Which is the whole tragedy of the Jews. I say again, the hypocrisy of the Jews. They didn't realize that in excusing themselves of the same sins they condemned others for practicing, they were in fact condemning themselves. And here is the whole trouble of judging another, which our Lord speaks of in Matthew chapter 7. He says, judge not lest you be judged, for in the measure you judge another, you will be judged yourself. He is explaining the exact thought that Paul is here in chapter 2, verse 1. Here is the trouble with judging, which both are saying. It's not that we judge the man who sins. It's not that we disapprove or condemn him for it. It's that we fail to judge ourselves by the same standard. It's that we apply a different standard to ourselves than the man we are condemning. And thus, as a result, our judgment is not true. It is false entirely. It is the rendering of a false judgment. And so when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, he is warning us that you cannot apply two standards. That the very severity of judgment you apply to another will be applied to you. So it's not wrong to judge another so long as you're prepared to face the same scrutiny, which the Jew was not. In fact, he wasn't prepared to face any scrutiny. Number two, the Jew failed in another way. He failed to see this basic fact, verse two. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. He's saying that the Jew misunderstood profoundly the judgment of God and the justice of God. In fact, he ignored what in reality he really knew, just like the Gentile. It was something which he knew. It's something that we all know. And yet, which he didn't reckon with rightly. He distorted it, much as we'll see in verse 4. He took the goodness of God and distorted it as well. 
he didn't see that God's judgment was essentially different than his own. And so Paul is making a contrast in verses 1 and 2. He's contrasting the man who judges falsely, verse 1. He renders false judgments, particularly with reference to himself as a Jew. He's contrasting that with God's true judgment in verse 2. And he makes two statements about God's judgment, which he regards as self-evident. We know. And you notice he speaks that way a lot in these verses. First, it is according to truth. So immediately the contrast is apparent. God's judgment is always according to truth. In contrast to man's false judgment in verse 1. Which means, unlike the Jew, God sees his sin. He sees the sin of the Jew. The, the Jew doesn't see it about himself. In other words, it's a true judgment about this man, not a false one. And more importantly, as he later states in verse 11, it's also a fair application of justice, very unlike the false application of the Jew. For there is no partiality with God, verse 11. It is true, it is fair, it is equitable. In other words, God doesn't show favoritism in rendering judgment. He doesn't say about the Gentile, I'm going to judge this man as strictly and severely as I can. But this other man, this Jew, I'm going to let off and go easy. Two standards, two applications of judgment. For God to say of the Jew, for him, in essence, there is no judgment. I will forgo it. Now, what Paul is saying is that would be false. That would not be justice. It would be the opposite. And even the Jew must have known it. If only he had considered what God's justice must be like. Of course, God's judgment could not be like this. Two standards for two groups of people. To tell the Jew, it's all right if you sin. I'm not going to judge you. I'll let you off just because you're a Jew. That isn't judgment at all. Certainly not judgment according to truth. That's leniency. The opposite of justice. But then equally, it's a true judgment, number two, because it is against those who practice such things. That's the second thing he says in verse two. In other words, because it is according to truth, it is against everyone who sins. There are no exceptions. There are no exemptions. Because all practice sin, God's judgment is against all, which is the unavoidable conclusion. It is necessary, this conclusion is necessary, I mean, that because all sin, God is against all, if God's judgment is to be true and not a lie. And thus the Jew is robbed of yet another excuse. Because he, is sin, because he sins, he's not exempt. He is liable to the judgment of God. But finally, Paul concludes in verse 3 with this question. Do you think that you will escape or evade God's wrath just because you're a Jew? Even though you practice the same things the Gentiles do. Verse 3. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? You see, again, he is describing the position of the Jew like this. Merely the fact that he condemns sins in others. Not the fact that he doesn't practice the same sins because he does. But just the fact that he condemns the sins in others. Does the Jew imagine that will be enough to escape the wrath of God? Even when you are guilty of the very sins that you are condemning in others. Well, plainly, the Jew thought that it was. He thought of God's judgment like his own. Again, 
the strict standard applied to others, the leniency applied to himself. But it wasn't. Verse 2 robs him of this illusion, and verse 3 exposes him as the one who is condemned and who is unable by his own folly to escape the wrath of God. Of course, the question arises whether the Jews really were guilty of the same sins. But again, if you read the Old Testament, and then of the Jews in the Gospels, there can be no other conclusion. They love to condemn others while excusing themselves. They also love to lower the standard of the law uh, in order to give them a sense that they had kept it and so justify themselves in the sight of the God, in the sight of God. The truth is that the Jews were sinners too. Chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You see, that is a statement without exception. It includes the Gentile, yes, but it also includes the Jew. Every mouth, which includes the mouth of the Jew. And so what the Jew needed was to see that the gospel was just as much meant for him as it was for the Gentiles. You see, it was easy for the Jew to say, and this is what Paul is uh, is seeking to demolish. The Jew to say something like this, I can see how the Gentiles might need your message, Paul, but I cannot see how I need it. And here Paul says to them, in essence, That is because you do not see that you are in the same exact position. The gospel is for all because all are sinners. That is Paul's message. In this there are no exceptions. Verse 21 of chapter 3. Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. He says, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, the gospel is offered to all because all are under sin. And God's wrath is being revealed against them. All men alike. And if only they would see this, then they would welcome the message of salvation. Paul would preach to them and they would be happy about it. Or they would recognize, as Paul will go on to say in chapter 2, verse 4, as we'll consider next time, that the goodness of God, his long-suffering, his forbearance with sin and sinners was meant to lead, not to license to sin or further license to sin, but it was meant to lead men on to repentance. God was not as lenient as men thought. The justice, the wrath, the severity applied to them all alike. But he wanted them to repent. He wanted to give them a chance to hear this message and to believe it and to repent. And oh, that we might repent and be saved and find refuge in the power of God's gospel. And to see that there isn't a single person. And there isn't a single exception in the whole world. All alike equally stand under the law and under the wrath and under God's judgment. And therefore stand alike equally in need of this salvation and this message 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Amen. And let us now come to the table.